0: Slowly, Paul got to his feet. A sigh passed around the circle. Paul felt the diminishment of his self as he advanced into the center of the circle. It was as though he lost a fragment of himself and sought it here. He bent over the mound of belongings, lifted out the balisette. A string twanged softly as it struck against something in the pile. I was a friend of Jameis, Paul whispered. He felt tears burning his eyes, forced more volume into his voice. "'Jamus taught me that when you kill, you pay for it. I wish I'd known Jamus better.' Blindly, he groped his way back to his place in the circle, sank to the rock floor. A voice hissed. "'He sheds tears.' It was taken up around the ring. "'Oosel gives moisture to the dead.' He felt fingers touch his damp cheek, heard the awed whispers. Jessica, hearing the voices, felt the depth of the experience, realized what terrible inhibitions there must be against shedding tears. She focused on the words, He gives moisture to the dead. It was a gift to the shadow world. Tears. They would be sacred beyond a doubt. Nothing on this planet had so forcefully hammered into her the ultimate value of water. Not the water-sellers, not the dried skins of the natives, not still-suits or the rules of water-discipline. Here there was a substance more precious than all others. It was life itself, and entwined all around with symbolism and ritual. Water. "'I touched his cheek,' someone whispered. "'I felt the gift.' At first, the fingers touching his face frightened Paul. He clutched the cold handle of the baliset, feeling the strings bite his palm. Then he saw the faces beyond the groping hands, the eyes wide and wondering. Presently, the hands withdrew. The funeral ceremony resumed. But now there was a subtle space around Paul, a drawing back as the troop honored him by a respectful isolation. The ceremony ended with a low chant full moon calls thee shai hulud shalt thou see red the night dusky sky bloody death didst thou die we pray to a moon she is round luck with us will then abound what we seek for shall be found in the land of solid ground a bulging sack remained at Stilgar's feet he crouched, placed his palms against it. Someone came up beside him, crouched at his elbow, and Paul recognized Chaney's face in the hood shadow. Jamis carried thirty three litres and seven and three thirty seconds drams of the tribe's water, Chaney said. I bless it now in the presence of a Saedina. Ekeri Akairi, this is the water Philicine for of Paul Muad Tib, Kivi Akavi. Never the more, nakalas, nakalas, to be measured and counted. Uka'iran, by the heart beats Jean, 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 of our friend, Jemis. In an abrupt and profound silence, Cheney turned, stared at Paul. Presently she said, Where I am flame, be thou the coals. Where I am dew, be thou the water. Bilal intoned the troop. To Paul Muad'Dib goes this portion, Cheney said. May he guard it for the tribe, preserving it against careless loss. May he be generous with it in time of need. May he pass it on in his time for the good of the tribe. al Kaifa, intoned the troop. I must accept that water, Paul thought. Slowly he arose, made his way to Cheney's side. Silgar stepped back to make room for him, took the balisette gently from his hand. Kneel, Cheney said. Paul knelt. She guided his hands to the water-bag, held them against the resilient surface. With this water the tribe entrusts thee, she said. Jamis is gone from it. Take it in peace. She stood, pulling Paul up with her. Stilgar returned the balisette, extended a small pile of metal rings in one palm. Paul looked at them, seeing the different sizes, the way the light of the glow-globe reflected off them. Cheney took the largest ring, held it on a finger. Thirty litres, she said. One by one she took the others, showing each to Paul, counting them. Two litres, one litre, seven water counters of one drachm each. One water counter of three thirty-seconds drachms. In all, thirty-three liters and seven and three thirty-seconds drachms. She held them up on her finger for Paul to see. Do you accept them? Stilgar asked. Paul swallowed, nodded. Yes. Later, Chaney said, I will show you how to tie them in a kerchief so they won't rattle and give you away when you need silence. She extended her hand. Will you hold them for me? Paul asked. Cheney turned a startled glance on Stilgar. He smiled, said, Paul Muad'Dib, who is Usul, does not yet know our ways, Cheney, Hold his water counters without commitment until it's time to show him the manner of carrying them. She nodded whipped a ribbon of cloth from beneath her robe, linked the rings onto it with an intricate over-and-under weaving, hesitated, then stuffed them into the sash beneath her robe. I missed something there, Paul thought. He sensed the feeling of humour around him, something bantering in it, and his mind linked up a prescient memory. Water counters offered to a woman, courtship ritual. Watermasters, Stilgar said. The troop arose in a hissing of robes. Two men stepped out, lifted the water-bag. Stilgar took down the glow-globe, led the way with it into the depths of the cave. Paul was pressed in behind Cheney, noted the buttery glow of light over rock walls, the way the shadows danced. And he felt the troop's lift of spirits contained in a hush air of expectancy. Jessica pulled into the end of the troop by eager hands, Hemmed around by jostling bodies, suppressed a moment of panic. She had recognized fragments of the ritual, identified the shards of Chakobsa and Botanijib in the words, and she knew the wild violence that could explode out of these seemingly simple moments. Jean, 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 she thought. Go, go, go. It was like a child's game that had lost all inhibition in adult hands. Stilgar stopped at a yellow rock wall. He pressed an outcropping, and the wall swung silently away from him, opening along an irregular crack. He led the way through past a dark honeycomb lattice that directed a cool wash of air across Paul when he passed it. Paul turned a questioning stare on Cheney, tugged her arm. "'That air felt damp,' he said. "'Shh,' she whispered. But a man behind them said, "'Plenty of moisture in the trap tonight.' James's way of telling us he's satisfied. Jessica passed through the secret door, heard it close behind. She saw how the Fremen slowed while passing the honeycomb lattice, felt the dampness of the air as she came opposite it. Wind trap, she thought. They've a concealed wind trap somewhere on the surface to funnel air down here into cooler regions and precipitate the moisture from it. They passed through another rock door with latticework above it, and the door closed behind them. The draught of air at their backs carried a sensation of moisture clearly perceptible to both Jessica and Paul. At the head of the troop, the glow-globe in Stilgar's hands dropped below the level of the heads in front of Paul. Presently he felt steps beneath his feet curving down to the left. Light reflected back up across hooded heads and a winding movement of people spiralling down the steps. Jessica sensed mounting tension in the people around her a pressure of silence that rasped her nerves with its urgency. The steps ended and the troop passed through another low door. The light of the glow-globe was swallowed in a great open space with a high curved ceiling. Paul felt Cheney's hand on his arm, heard a faint dripping sound in the chill air, felt an utter stillness come over the Fremen in the cathedral presence of water. I have seen this place in a dream, he thought. The thought was both reassuring and frustrating. Somewhere ahead of him on this path, the fanatic hordes cut their gory path across the universe in his name. The green and black Atreides banner would become a symbol of terror. Wild legions would charge into battle, screaming their war cry, Mwadib! It must not be, he thought. I cannot let it happen. But he could feel the demanding race consciousness within him, his own terrible purpose, and he knew that no small thing could deflect the juggernaut. It was gathering weight and momentum. If he died this instant, the thing would go on through his mother and his unborn sister. Nothing less than the deaths of all the troop gathered here and now, himself and his mother included, could stop the thing. Paul stared around him, saw the troop spread out in a line. They pressed him forward against a low barrier carved from native rock. Beyond the barrier, in the glow of Stilgar's globe, Paul saw an unruffled dark surface of water. It stretched away into shadows, deep and black, the far wall only faintly visible, perhaps a hundred meters away. Jessica felt the dry pulling of skin on her cheeks and forehead, relaxing in the presence of moisture. The water pool was deep, she could sense its deepness and resisted a desire to dip her hands into it. A splashing sounded on her left. She looked down the shadowy line of Fremen, saw Stilgar with Paul standing beside him and the watermasters emptying their load into the pool through a flow-meter. The meter was a round, grey eye above the pool's rim. She saw its glowing pointer move as the water flowed through it, saw the pointer stop at thirty-three litres, Seven and three thirty seconds, drachms. Superb accuracy in water measurement, Jessica thought. And she noted that the walls of the meter trough held no trace of moisture after the water's passage. The water flowed off those walls without binding tension. She saw a profound clue to Fremen technology in the simple fact. They were perfectionists. Jessica worked her way down the barrier to Stilgar's side. Way was made for her with casual courtesy. She noted the withdrawn look in Paul's eyes, but the mystery of this great pool of water dominated her thoughts. Stilgar looked at her. There were those among us in need of water, he said, yet they would come here and not touch this water. Do you know that? I believe it, she said. He looked at the pool. We have more than thirty-eight million decaliters here, he said. Walled off from the little makers, hidden and preserved. A treasure trove, she said. Stilgar lifted the globe to look into her eyes. It is greater than treasure. We have thousands of such caches. Only a few of us know them all. He cocked his head to one side. The globe cast a yellow, shattered glow across face and beard. Hear that? They listened. The dripping of water precipitated from the wind trap filled the room with its presence. Jessica saw that the entire troop was caught up in a rapture of listening. Only Paul seemed to stand remote from it. To Paul, the sound was like moments taking away. He could feel time flowing through him, the instants never to be recaptured. He sensed a need for decision, but felt powerless to move. "'It has been calculated with precision,' Stilgar whispered, we know to within a million decalitres how much we need. When we have it, we shall change the face of Arrakis. A hushed whisper of response lifted from the troop. Bilal Kaifa. We will trap the dunes beneath grass plantings, Stilgar said, his voice growing stronger. We will tie the water into the soil with trees and undergrowth. Bilal Kaifa, interned the troop. Each year the polar ice retreats, Stilgar said. Bilal Kaifa, they chanted. We shall make a homeworld of Arrakis, with melting lenses at the poles, with lakes in the temperate zones, and only the deep desert for the maker and his spice. Bilal Kaifa! "'And no man ever again shall want for water. "'It shall be his for dipping from well or pond or lake or canal. "'It shall run down through the Khanats to feed our plants. "'It shall be there for any man to take. "'It shall be his for holding out his hand. "'Bilal Kaifa!' "'Jessica felt the religious ritual in the words, "'noted her own instinctively awed response. "'They're in league with the future,' she thought. They have their mountain to climb. This is the scientist's dream, and these simple people, these peasants, are filled with it. Her thoughts turned to Liet Kynes, the emperor's planetary ecologist, the man who had gone native, and she wondered at him. This was a dream to capture men's souls, and she could sense the hand of the ecologist in it. This was a dream for which men would die willingly, It was another of the essential ingredients that she felt her son needed, people with a goal. Such people would be easy to imbue with fervor and fanaticism. They could be wielded like a sword to win back Paul's place for him. "'We leave now,' Stilgar said, and wait for the first moon's rising. When Jamis is safely on his way, we will go home.' Whispering their reluctance, the troop fell in behind him, turned back along the water barrier and up the stairs. And Paul, walking behind Cheney, felt that a vital moment had passed him, that he had missed an essential decision and was now caught up in his own myth. He knew he had seen this place before, experienced it in a fragment of prescient dream on far away Caladan, but details of the place were being filled in now that he had not seen, He felt a new sense of wonder at the limits of his gift. It was as though he rode within the wave of time, sometimes in its trough, sometimes on a crest, and all around him the other waves lifted and fell, revealing and then hiding what they bore on their surface. Through it all, the wild jihad still loomed ahead of him, the violence and the slaughter. It was like a promontory above the surf. The troop filed through the last door into the main cavern. The door was sealed. Lights were extinguished, hoods removed from the cavern openings, revealing the night and the stars that had come over the desert. Jessica moved to the dry lip of the cavern's edge, looked up at the stars. They were sharp and near. She felt the stirring of the troop around her, heard the sound of a balisette being tuned somewhere behind her and Paul's voice humming the pitch. There was a melancholy in his tone that she did not like. Cheney's voice intruded from the deep cave darkness. Tell me about the waters of your birth world, Paul Mardib. And Paul. Another time, Cheney. I promise. Such sadness. It's a good ballet Cheney said. Very good, Paul said. Do you think Jamis will mind my using it? He speaks of the dead in the present tense, Jessica thought. The implications disturbed her. A man's voice intruded. He liked music betimes, James did. Then sing me one of your songs, Janey pleaded. Such feminine allure in that girl-child's voice, Jessica thought. I must caution Paul about their women. And soon. This was a song of a friend of mine, Paul said. I expect he's dead now, Gurney is. He called it his even song. The troupe grew still, listened as Paul's voice lifted in a sweet boy tenor, with the balisette tinkling and strumming beneath it. This clear time of seeing embers, a gold-bright sun's lost in first dusk, what frenzied senses, desperate musk, are consort of remembering. Jessica felt the verbal music in her breast pagan and charged with sounds that made her suddenly and intensely aware of herself feeling her own body and its needs she listened with a tense stillness night's pearl censored requiem tis for us what joys run then bright in your eyes what flower-spangled amores pull at our hearts what flower-spangled amores fill our desires and Jessica heard the after stillness that hummed in the air with the last note. Why does my son sing a love song to that girl child? She asked herself. She felt an abrupt fear. She could sense life flowing around her and she had no grasp on its reins. Why did he choose that song? She wondered. The instincts are true sometimes. Why did he do this? Paul sat silently in the darkness, a single stark thought dominating his awareness. My mother is my enemy. She does not know it, but she is. She is bringing the jihad. She bore me. She trained me. She is my enemy.
1: The concept of progress acts as a protective mechanism to shield us from the terrors of the future. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan.
0: On his 17th birthday, Fade Rautha Harkonnen killed his 100th slave gladiator in the family games. Visiting observers from the Imperial Court, a Count and Lady Fenring, were on the Harkonnen homeworld of Gedi Prime for the event, invited to sit that afternoon with the immediate family in the golden box above the triangular arena. In honour of the Baron's nativity, and to remind all Harkonnens and subjects that Fade Ratha was heir-designate, it was holiday on de Prime. The old baron had decreed a meridian-to-meridian rest from labours, and effort had been spent in the family city of Harko to create the illusion of gaiety. Banners flew from buildings, new paint had been splashed on the walls along Court Way.' But off the main way, Count Fenring and his lady noted the rubbish heaps, the scabrous brown walls reflected in the dark puddles of the streets, and the furtive scurrying of the people. In the baron's blue-walled keep there was fearful perfection, but the Count and his lady saw the price being paid, guards everywhere, and weapons with that special sheen that told a trained eye they were in regular use. There were checkpoints for routine passage from area to area, even within the keep. The servants revealed their military training in the way they walked, in the set of their shoulders, in the way their eyes watched and watched and watched. "'The pressure's on,' the Count hummed to his lady in their secret language. "'The Baron is just beginning to see the price he really paid to rid himself of the Duke Leto.' "'Sometimes I must recount for you the legend of the Phoenix,' she said. They were in the reception hall of the keep, waiting to go to the family games. It was not a large hall, perhaps forty meters long, and half that in width, but false pillars along the sides had been shaped with an abrupt taper, and the ceiling had a subtle arch, all giving the illusion of much greater space. "'Ah, here comes the baron,' the count said. The baron moved down the length of the hall with that peculiar, waddling glide imparted by the necessities of guiding Suspenser-hung weight." His jowls bobbed up and down. The suspensers jiggled and shifted beneath his orange robe. Rings glittered on his hands, and fires shone where they had been woven into the robe. At the baron's elbow walked Fade Rother. His dark hair was dressed in close ringlets that seemed incongruously gay above sullen eyes. He wore a tight-fitting black tunic and snug trousers with a suggestion of bell at the bottom. Soft-soled slippers covered his small feet. Lady Fenring, noting the young man's poise and the sure flow of muscles beneath the tunic, thought, "'Here's one who won't let himself go to fat.' The baron stopped in front of them, took Fade Rother's arm in a possessive grip, said, "'My nephew, the Baron Fade Rother Harkonnen.' And turning his baby-fat face toward Fade Rother, he said, "'The count and Lady Fenring, of whom I've spoken.' Fade rather dipped his head with the required courtesy. He stared at the Lady Fenring. She was golden-haired and willowy, her perfection of figure clothed in a flowing gown of ecru, simple fitness of form without ornament. Grey-green eyes stared back at him. She had that Bene Gesserit, serene repose about her that the young man found subtly disturbing. <coughs> Said the count, he studied fade rather the hum um, um, precise young man ah uh, my um, um, dear the count glanced at the Baron, my dear baron, you say you've spoken of us to this precise young man. what did you say? I told my nephew of the great esteem our emperor holds for you, Count Fenring, the baron said, and he thought, mark him well, fade. A killer with the manners of a rabbit, this is the most dangerous kind. Well, of course, said the Count, and he smiled at his lady. Fade Ruther found the man's actions and words almost insulting. They stopped just short of something overt that would require notice. The young man focused his attention on the Count, a small man, weak-looking. The face was weaselish with over-large dark eyes. There was grey at the temples, and his movements... He moved a hand or turned his head one way, then he spoke another way. It was difficult to follow. Um, 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 ah, um, 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 you come upon such um, um, preciseness so rarely, the count said, addressing the baron's shoulder. I uh, congratulate you on the um, 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 perfection of your air, uh, uh, In the light of the um, elder, one might say, you are too kind, the baron said. He bowed, but Fade Rautha noted that his uncle's eyes did not agree with the courtesy. When you're, um, um, ironic, that uh, suggests you're, um, thinking deep thoughts, the count said. There he goes again, Fade Rautha thought. It sounds like he's being insulting, but there's nothing you can call out for satisfaction. Listening to the man gave Fade Rautha the feeling his head was being pushed through mush. Fayed turned his attention back to the Lady Fenring. We are uh, taking up too much of this young man's time, she said. I understand he is to appear in the arena today. By the hoories of the Imperial harem, she's a lovely one, Fayed Routher thought. He said, I shall make a kill for you this day, my lady. I shall make the dedication in the arena with your permission. She returned his stare serenely, but her voice carried whiplash as she said, "You do not have my permission, fade the baron said, and he thought that imp does he want this deadly count to call him out? But the count only smiled and said, Hum, you really must be getting ready for the arena. fade the baron said, You must be rested, not take any foolish risks." Phaedratha bowed, his face dark with resentment. I'm sure everything will be as you wish, uncle, he nodded to Count Fenring. Sir, to the lady. My lady, and he turned, strode out of the hall, barely glancing at the knot of family's minor near the double doors. He's so young, the baron sighed. Um, indeed, "Hm," the count said. And the Lady Fenring thought, "'Can that be the young man the Reverend Mother meant? Is that a bloodline we must preserve?' "'We've more than an hour before going to the arena,' the Baron said. "'Perhaps we could have our little talk now, Count Fenring.' He tipped his gross head to the right. "'There's a considerable amount of progress to be discussed.' And the Baron thought, Let us see now how the emperor's errand boy gets across whatever message he carries, without ever being so crass as to speak it right out. The count spoke to his lady. "Um, um, um, uh, um, You um, um, will uh, excuse us, my dear? Each day, sometime each hour, brings change, she said. Mm -hmm. And she smiled sweetly at the baron before turning away. Her long skirts swished and she walked with a straight-backed, regal stride toward the double doors at the end of the hall. The baron noted how all conversation among the houses minor there stopped at her approach, how the eyes followed her. Bene Jesseret, the baron thought. The universe would be better rid of them all. There's a cone of silence between two of the pillars over here on our left, the baron said. We can talk there without fear of being overheard. He led the way with his waddling gait into the sound deadening field Feeling the noises of the keep become dull and distant The count moved up beside the baron And they turned, facing the wall so their lips could not be read mm,
2: We're not satisfied with the way you ordered the Sardaukar off Arrakis
0: Straight talk, the baron thought
3: The Sardaukar could not stay longer without risking that others would find out how the Emperor helped me. Mm,
2: But your nephew Raban does not appear to be uh, pressing strongly enough toward a solution of the Fremen problem.
3: What does the Emperor wish? There cannot be more than a handful of Fremen left on Arrakis. The southern desert is uninhabitable. The northern desert is swept regularly by our patrols.
2: Uh, who says the southern desert is mm, uninhabitable?
3: Your own planetologist said it, my dear Count.
2: But Dr. Kynes is dead.
3: Ah, yes. Unfortunate, that.
2: We've word from an overflight across the southern reaches. Uh, there's evidence of plant life?
3: Has the Guild then agreed to a watch from space? Hmm, you know better than that,
2: Baron. The Emperor cannot legally post a watch on Arrakis.
3: And I cannot afford it. Who made this overflight? A, uh, smuggler. Someone has lied to you, Count. Smugglers cannot navigate the southern reaches any better than Canra Ban's men. Storm, sand static, and all that you know. Navigation markers are knocked out faster than they can be installed. Mm, we'll discuss various types of static,
2: uh, another time Ah, the Baron thought
3: Have you found some mistake in my accounting, then?
2: When you imagine mistakes, there can be no self-defense He's
0: deliberately trying to arouse my anger, the Baron thought He took two deep breaths to calm himself He could smell his own sweat and the harness of the suspensers beneath his robe felt suddenly itchy and galling.
3: The Emperor cannot be unhappy about the death of the concubine and the boy. They fled into the desert. There was a storm. Yes.
2: There were so many convenient accidents.
3: I do not like your tone,
2: Count. Mm, Anger is one thing, violence another. Let me caution you. Should an unfortunate accident uh, occur to me here, the great houses all would learn what you did on Arrakis. They've long suspected how you do
3: business. The only recent business I can recall was the transportation of several legions of Sardaukar to Arrakis.
2: You think you could hold that over the Emperor's head?
3: I wouldn't think of it.
2: Sardaukar commanders could be found who'd confess they acted without orders because they, uh, wanted a battle with your
3: Fremen scum. Many might doubt such a confession.
0: The threat staggered the Baron. Are Sardaukar truly that disciplined, he wondered. The Emperor does wish to audit your
2: books.
3: Any time.
2: You, uh... Have no objections?
3: None. My Chome Company directorship will bear the closest scrutiny.
0: And he thought, let him bring a false accusation against me and have it exposed. I shall stand there, Promethean saying, behold me, I am wronged. Then let him bring any other accusation against me, even a true one. The great houses will not believe a second attack from an accuser once proved wrong. No doubt your books
2: will bear the closest scrutiny.
3: Why is the Emperor so interested in exterminating the Fremen? You wish the subject to be changed, eh?
2: It is the Sadakar who wish it, not the Emperor. They uh, needed practice in killing, and they hate to see a task left undone.
0: "'Does he think to frighten me by reminding me that he is supported by bloodthirsty killers?' the Baron wondered.
3: "'A certain amount of killing has always been an arm of business, but a line has to be drawn somewhere. Someone must be left to work the spice.'
2: "'Ha! You think you can harness the Fremen?'
3: "'There never were enough of them for that, but the killing has made the rest of my population uneasy. "'It's reaching the point where I'm considering another solution to the Arakeen problem, my dear Fenring.' And I must confess the Emperor deserves credit for the inspiration. Uh Ah? You see, Count, I have the Emperor's prison planet, Seleucus Secundus, to inspire me.
0: The Count stared at him with glittering intensity.
2: What possible connection is there between Arrakis and Seleucus
0: Secundus? The Baron felt the alertness in Fenring's eyes.
3: No connection yet. Yet? You must admit, it'd be a way to develop a substantial workforce on Arrakis, use the place as a prison planet.
2: Mm, You anticipate an increase in prisoners?
3: There has been unrest. I've had to squeeze rather severely, Fenring. After all, you know the price I paid that damnable guild to transport our mutual force to Arrakis? That money has to come from somewhere.
2: I suggest you not use Arrakis as a prison planet without the Emperor's permission, Baron.
3: Of course not.
2: Another matter. We learned that Duke Leto's Mentat, Thufir Hawat, is not dead, but in your employ.
3: I could not bring myself to waste him.
2: You lied to our Sardaukar commander when you said Hawat
3: was dead. Only a white lie, my dear Count. I had in the stomach for a long argument with the man. Mm, Was Hawat the real traitor? Oh, goodness, no. It was the false doctor. The
0: Baron wiped at perspiration on his neck.
3: You must understand, Finring. I was without a mentat. You know that. I've never been without a mentat. It was most unsettling.
2: How could you get Hawat to shift allegiance?
3: His duke was dead. The Baron forced a smile. There is nothing to fear from Howart, my dear Count. The Mentat's flesh has been impregnated with a latent poison. We administer an antidote in his meals. Without the antidote, the poison is triggered. He'd die in a few days.
2: Mm, withdraw the antidote.
3: But he's useful.
2: And he knows too many things no living man should know.
3: You said the Emperor doesn't fear exposure. Don't play games with me, Baron. When I see such an order above the Imperial Seal, I'll obey it. But I'll not submit to your whim.
2: Mm, You think it whim?
3: What else can it be? The Emperor has obligations to me too, Fenring. I rid him of the troublesome duke.
2: With the help of a few Sardaukar.
3: Where else would the Emperor have found a house to provide the disguising uniforms to hide his hand in this matter? He has asked himself the
2: same question, Baron, but with a slightly different emphasis.
0: The Baron studied Fenring, noting the stiffness of jaw muscles, the careful control. Ah, now
3: I hope the Emperor doesn't believe he can move against me in total secrecy.
2: He hopes it won't, uh, become necessary.
3: The Emperor
0: cannot believe I threaten him. The Baron permitted anger and grief to edge his voice, thinking, let him wrong me in that. I could place myself on the throne while still beating my breast over how I'd been wronged. The Emperor believes what his senses tell him.
3: Dare the Emperor charge me with treason before a full landsrod council?
0: And the Baron held his breath with the hope of it. The Emperor need dare nothing. The Baron whirled away in his suspensers to hide his expression. It could happen in my lifetime, he thought. Emperor, let him wrong me. Then, the bribes and coercion, the rallying of the great houses, they flock to my banner like peasants running for shelter. The thing they'd fear above all else is the Emperor's Sarduka loosed upon them one house at a time. It's the Emperor's sincere hope. uh, He'll never have to charge you with treason. The Baron found it difficult to keep irony out of his voice and permit only the expression of hurt. But he managed.
3: I've been a most loyal subject. These words hurt me beyond my capacity to express. (sighs) It's time to go to the arena.
0: Indeed. They moved out of the Cone of Silence and, side by side, walked toward the clumps of Houses Minor at the end of the hall. A bell began a slow tolling somewhere in the keep, twenty-minute warning for the arena gathering. "'The houses minor wait for you to lead them,' the Count said, "'nodding toward the people they approached. "'Double meaning, double meaning,' the Baron thought. "'He looked up at the new talismans flanking the exit to his hall, "'the mounted bull's head, and the oil-painting of the old Duke Atreides, "'the late Duke Leto's father. "'They filled the Baron with an odd sense of foreboding.' and he wondered what thoughts these talismans had inspired in the Duke Leto as they hung in the halls of Caladan and then on Arrakis, the bravura father and the head of the bull that had killed him. "'Mankind has uh, only one, mm, science,' the Count said as they picked up their parade of followers and emerged from the hall into the waiting room, a narrow space with high windows and floor of patterned white and purple tile. "'And what science is that?' the baron asked. "'It's the um, uh, uh, science of uh, uh, discontent,' the count said. The houses minor behind them, sheep-faced and responsive, laughed with just the right tone of appreciation, but the sound carried a note of discord as it collided with the sudden blast of motors that came to them when pages threw open the outer doors, revealing the line of ground cars, their guidon pennants whipping in a breeze.' The baron raised his voice to surmount the sudden noise, said, "'I hope you'll not be discontented with the performance of my nephew today, Count Fenring. "'I uh, am filled um, um, only with a um, um, sense of anticipation, yes,' the count said. "'Always in the uh, process verbal one um, um, uh, must consider the uh, office of origin.' The baron did his sudden stiffening of surprise by stumbling on the first step down from the exit. Process verbal. That was a report of a crime against the Imperium. But the count chuckled to make it seem a joke, and patted the baron's arm. All the way to the arena, though, the baron sat back among the armored cushions of his car, casting covert glances at the count beside him, wondering why the emperor's errand-boy had thought it necessary to make that particular kind of joke in front of the house's minor, It was obvious that Fenring seldom did anything he felt to be unnecessary, or used two words where one would do, or held himself to a single meaning in a single phrase. They were seated in the golden box above the triangular arena, horns blaring, the tears above and around them jammed with a hubbub of people and waving pennants, when the answer came to the baron. My dear Baron, the Count said, leaning close to his ear, you know, don't you, that the Emperor has not given official sanction to your choice of heir? The Baron felt himself to be within a sudden personal cone of silence, produced by his own shock. He stared at Fenring, barely seeing the Count's lady come through the guards beyond to join the party in the golden box. That's really why I'm here today, the Count said. The Emperor wishes me to report on whether you've chosen a worthy successor. There's nothing like the arena to expose the true person from beneath the mask, eh? The Emperor promised me free choice of heir, the Baron grated. We shall see, Fenring said, and turned away to greet his lady. She sat down, smiling at the baron, then giving her attention to the sand floor beneath them, where Fade Rother was emerging in gil and tights, the black glove and the long knife in his right hand, the white glove and the short knife in his left hand. White for poison, black for purity, the Lady Fenring said. A curious custom, isn't it, my love? Um, um the Count said. The greeting cheer lifted from the family galleries, and Fade Rautha paused to accept it, looking up and scanning the faces, seeing his cousine and cousins, the demi-brothers, the concubines, and out relations. They were so many pink trumpet mouths yammering amidst a flutter of colourful clothing and banners. It came to Fade Rautha then that the packed ranks of faces would look just as avidly at his blood as at that of the slave gladiator. There was not a doubt of the outcome in this fight, of course. Here was only the form of danger without its substance. Fade Rautha held up his knives to the sun, saluted the three corners of the arena in the ancient manner. The short knife in white-gloved hand, white, the sign of poison, went first into its sheath. Then the long blade in the black gloved hand, the pure blade that now was unpure, his secret weapon to turn this day into a purely personal victory, poison on the black blade. The adjustment of his body shield took only a moment and he paused to sense the skin tightening at his forehead assuring him he was properly guarded. This moment carried its own suspense, and Fade Rother dragged it out with a sure hand of a showman, nodding to his handlers and distractors, checking their equipment with a measuring stare, gyves in place with their prickles sharp and glistening, the barbs and hooks weaving with their blue streamers. Fade Rother signalled the musicians. The slow march began, sonorous with its ancient pomp, and Faye Drother led his troop across the arena for obeisance at the foot of his uncle's box. He caught the ceremonial key as it was thrown. The music stopped. Into the abrupt silence, he stepped back two paces, raised the key, and shouted, "'I dedicate this truth to—' And he paused, knowing his uncle would think, "'The young fool's going to dedicate a Lady Fenring after all, "'and cause a ruckus. "'To my uncle and patron—' The Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, Fade Ratha shouted. He was delighted to see his uncle sigh. The music resumed at the quick march, and Fade Ruther led his men scampering back across the arena to the prudence door that admitted only those wearing the proper identification band. Fade Ratha prided himself that he never used the door and seldom needed distractors. But it was good to know they were available this day. Special plans sometimes involved special dangers. Again, silence settled over the arena. Fade Rautha turned, faced the big red door across from him through which the gladiator would emerge. The special gladiator. The plan Thufir Hawat had devised was admirably simple and direct, Fade Rautha thought. The slave would not be drugged. That was the danger. Instead, a key word had been drummed into the man's unconscious to immobilize his muscles at a critical instant. Fade Rautha rolled the vital word in his mind, mouthing it without sound. Scum. To the audience, it would appear that an undrugged slave had been slipped into the arena to kill the Nah Baron, and all the carefully arranged evidence would point to the slave master. A low humming arose from the red door's servo motors as they were armed for opening. Fade Ruther focused all his awareness on the door. This first moment was the critical one. The appearance of the gladiator as he emerged told the trained eye much it needed to know. All gladiators were supposed to be hyped on Elaka drug to come out kill-ready in fighting stance, but you had to watch how they hefted the knife, which way they turned in defence, whether they were actually aware of the audience in the stands. The way a slave cocked his head could give the most vital clue to counter and feint. The red door slammed open. Out charged a tall, muscular man with shaved head and darkly pitted eyes. His skin was carrot-coloured, as it should be from the Alaka drug, but Ferdrather knew the colour was paint. The slave wore green leotards and the red belt of a semi-shield, the belt's arrow pointing left to indicate the slave's left side was shielded. He held his knife-sword fashion, cocked slightly outward in the stance of a trained fighter. Slowly he advanced into the arena, turning his shielded side toward Faid and the group at the Prudor. door. I like not the look of this one, said one of Fedratha's barb men. Are you sure he's drugged, my lord? He has the colour, Fedratha said. Yet he stands like a fighter, said another helper. Fedratha advanced two steps onto the sand, studied this slave. What has he done to his arm? asked one of the distractors. Phaedrath's attention went to a bloody scratch on the man's left forearm Followed the arm down to the hand as it pointed to a design drawn in blood On the left hip of the green leotards A wet shape there The formalized outline of a hawk Hawk! Phaedrath looked up into the darkly pitted eyes Saw them glaring at him with uncommon alertness It's one of Duke Leto's fighting men we took on Arrakis, Fadratha thought. No simple gladiator this. A chill ran through him, and he wondered if Howard had another plan for this arena, a feint within a feint within a feint, and only the slave master prepared to take the blame. Fadratha's chief handler spoke at his ear. I like not the look on that one, my lord. Let me set a barb or two in his knife arm to try him. I'll set my own barbs, Fadratha said. He took a pair of the long, hooked shafts from the handler, hefted them, testing the balance. These barbs, too, were supposed to be drugged, but not this time, and the chief handler might die because of that. But it was all part of the plan. "'You'll come out of this a hero,' Howard had said. "'Killed your gladiator man to man, and in spite of treachery. The slave-master will be executed, and your man will step into his spot.' Fade advanced another five paces into the arena, playing out the moment, studying the slave. Already, he knew, the experts in the stands above him were aware that something was wrong. The gladiator had the correct skin color for a drugged man, but he stood his ground and did not tremble. The aficionados would be whispering among themselves now, see how he stands. He should be agitated, attacking or retreating. See how he conserves his strength, how he waits. He should not wait. Faidrather felt his own excitement kindle. Let there be treachery in Howard's mind, he thought. I can handle this slave, and it's my long knife that carries the poison this time, not the short one. Even Howard doesn't know that. Hi, Harkonnen, the slave called. Are you prepared to die? Deathly stillness gripped the arena. Slaves did not issue the challenge. Now Fade Rother had a clear view of the gladiator's eyes, saw the cold ferocity of despair in them. He marked the way the man stood, loose and ready, muscles prepared for victory. The slave grapevine had carried Howard's message to this one. You'll get a true chance to kill the Gnar Baron. That much of the scheme was as they'd planned it then. A tight smile crossed Fade Rother's mouth. He lifted the barbs, seeing success for his plans in the way the gladiator stood. Hi, hey, hi! Hey, the slave challenged and crept forward two steps No one in the galleries can mistake it now, Phaedratha thought This slave should have been partly crippled by drug-induced terror Every movement should have betrayed his inner knowledge That there was no hope for him, he could not win He should have been filled with the stories of the poisons The Narbaran chose for the blade in his white-gloved hand The Gnarbaron never gave quick death he, delighted in demonstrating rare poisons, could stand in the arena pointing out interesting side-effects on a writhing victim. There was fear in the slave, yes, but not terror. Fadrotha lifted the barbs high, nodded in an almost greeting. The gladiator pounced. His faint and defensive counter were as good as any Fadrotha had ever seen, a timed side-blow missed by the barest fraction from severing the tendons of the Narbaran's left leg. Phaedrotha danced away, leaving a barbed shaft in the slave's right forearm, the hooks completely buried in flesh where the man could not withdraw them without ripping tendons. A concerted gasp lifted from the galleries. The sound filled Phaedrotha with elation. He knew now what his uncle was experiencing, sitting up there with the Fenrings, the observers from the Imperial Court beside him. There could be no interference with this fight. The forms must be observed in front of witnesses, and the baron would interpret the events in the arena only one way. Threat to himself. The slave backed, holding knife in teeth, and lashing the barbed shaft to his arm with a pennant. I do not feel your needle, he shouted. Again he crept forward, knife ready, left side presented. His body bent backward to give it the greatest surface of protection from the half-shield. That action, too, didn't escape the galleries. Sharp cries came from the family boxes. Phaedrauther's handlers were calling out to ask if he needed them. He waved them back to the Prudor. I'll give them a show such as they've never had before, Routher thought. No tame killing where they can sit back and admire the style. This will be something to take them by the guts and twist them. When I'm barren, they'll remember this day, and won't be a one of them can escape fear of me because of this day. Feidraltha gave ground slowly before the gladiator's crab-like advance. Arena sand grated underfoot. He heard the slave's panting, smelled his own sweat and a faint odor of blood on the air. Steadily, the Narbaran moved backward, turning to the right, his second barb ready. The slave danced sideways. Feidraltha appeared to stumble, heard the screams from the galleries. Again, the slave pounced. Gods what a fighting man fade rutherford thought as he leaped aside only youth's quickness saved him but he left the second barb buried in the deltoid muscle of the slave's right arm shrill cheers reigned from the galleries they cheer me now fade Ruther thought he heard the wildness in the voices just as howard had said he would they'd never cheered a family fighter that way before and he thought with an edge of grimness on a thing howard had told him It's easier to be terrified by an enemy you admire. Swiftly, Fadrotha retreated to the center of the arena where all could see clearly. He drew his long blade, crouched, and waited for the advancing slave. The man took only the time to lash the second barb tight to his arm, then sped in pursuit. Let the family see me do this thing, Fadrotha thought. I am their enemy. Let them think of me as they see me now. He drew his short blade. I do not fear you, Harkonnen swine, the gladiator said. Your tortures cannot hurt a dead man. I can be dead on my own blade before a handler lays finger to my flesh, and I'll have you dead beside me. Fade Rauther grinned, offering now the long blade, the one with the poison. Try this on, he said, and fainted with the short blade in his other hand. The slave-shifted knife-hands turned inside both parry and feint to grapple the Narbaran's short blade. The one in the white-gloved hand that tradition said should carry the poison. You will die, Harkonnen, the gladiator gasped. They struggled sideways across the sand. Where Fae shield met the slave's half-shield, a blue glow marked the contact, the air around them filled with ozone from the field. Die on your own poison, the slave grated. He began forcing the white-gloved hand inward, turning the blade he thought carried the poison. Let them see this, Fade thought. He brought down the long blade, felt it clang uselessly against the barbed shaft lashed to the slave's arm. Fade Drother felt a moment of desperation. He had not thought the barbed shafts would be an advantage for the slave, but they gave the man another shield. And the strength of this gladiator, the short blade was being forced inward inexorably, and Fade Drouthar focused on the fact that a man could also die on an unpoisoned blade. Scum! Faye Drouthar gasped. At the key word, the gladiator's muscles obeyed with a momentary slackness. It was enough for Faye Ruther. He opened a space between them sufficient for the long blade. Its poisoned tip flicked out, drew a red line down the slave's chest. There was instant agony in the poison. The man disengaged himself, staggered backward. "'Now let my dear family watch,' Ratha thought. "'Let them think on this slave who tried to turn the knife he thought poisoned and use it against me.' Let them wonder how a gladiator could come into this arena ready for such an attempt, and let them always be aware they cannot know for sure which of my hands carries the poison. Fade Rother stood in silence, watching the slow motions of the slave. The man moved within a hesitation awareness. There was an orthographic thing on his face now for every watcher to recognize, the death was written there. The slave knew it had been done to him, and he knew how it had been done. The wrong blade had carried the poison. You, the man moaned. Faye Drother drew back to give death its space. The paralyzing drug in the poison had yet to take full effect, but the man's slowness told of its advance. The slave staggered forward as though drawn by a string, one dragging step at a time. Each step was the only step in his universe. He still clutched his knife, but its point wavered. One day, one of us will get you, he gasped. A sad little mue contorted his mouth. He sat, sagged, then stiffened and rolled away from Fade Ratha face down. Ratha advanced in the silent arena, put a toe under the gladiator and rolled him onto his back to give the galleries a clear view of the face when the poison began its twisting, wrenching work on the muscles. But the gladiator came over with his own knife protruding from his breast. In spite of frustration, there was for Ratha a measure of admiration for the effort this slave had managed in overcoming the paralysis to do this thing to himself. With the admiration came the realization that here was truly a thing to fear. That which makes a man superhuman is terrifying. As he focused on this thought, Phaedratha became conscious of the eruption of noise from the stands and galleries around him. They were cheering with utter abandon. Phaedratha turned, looking up at them. All were cheering except the baron who sat with hand to chin in deep contemplation, and the count and his lady, both of whom were staring down at him, their faces masked by smiles. Count Fenring turned to his lady, said, um, Ah, resourceful um, 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 young man, eh, um, um, uh, my dear? His uh, synaptic responses are very swift, she said. The baron looked at her, at the count, "'returned his attention to the arena, thinking, "'If someone could get that close to one of mine!' "'Rage began to replace his fear. "'I'll have the slave-master dead over a slow fire this night, "'and if this count and his lady had a hand in it!' "'The conversation in the baron's box was remote movement to fade, rather. "'The voices drowned in the foot-stamping chant that came now from all around. "'Head! Head! Head! Head!' The baron scowled, seeing the way Fade Rauther turned to him. Languidly, controlling his rage with difficulty, the baron waved his hand toward the young man standing in the arena beside the sprawled body of the slave. Give the boy a head. He earned it by exposing the slave master. Fade Rather saw the signal of agreement, thought, They think they honour me. Let them see what I think. He saw his handlers approaching with a saw knife to do the honours, waved them back, repeated the gesture as they hesitated. They think they honour me with just a head, he thought. He bent and crossed the gladiator's hands around the protruding knife handle, then removed the knife and placed it in the limp hands. It was done in an instant, and he straightened, beckoned his handlers. Bury this slave intact with his knife in his hands, he said. The man earned it. In the golden box, Count Fenring leaned close to the baron, said, A grand gesture, that. True bravura. Your nephew has style as well as courage. He insults the crowd by refusing the head, the baron muttered. Not at all, Lady Fenring said. She turned, looking up at the tears around them. And the baron noted the line of her neck, a truly lovely flowing of muscles, like a young boy's. They like what your nephew did she said. As the import of Fayed Routher's gesture penetrated to the most distant seats, as the people saw the handlers carrying off the dead gladiator intact, the Baron watched them and realized she had interpreted the reaction correctly. The people were going wild, beating on each other, screaming and stamping. The Baron spoke wearily. I shall have to order a fate. You cannot send people home like this, their energies unspent. They must see that I share their elation. He gave a hand-signal to his guard, and a servant above them dipped the Harkonnen orange pennant over the box once, twice, three times. Signal for a fate. Fade Rother crossed the arena to stand beneath the golden box, his weapons sheathed, arms hanging at his sides. Above the undiminished frenzy of the crowd he called, A fate, Uncle? the noise began to subside as people saw the conversation and waited. "'In your honour, Fade!' the Baron called down, and again he caused the pennant to be dipped in signal. Across the arena the Prue barriers had been dropped and young men were leaping down into the arena, racing toward Fade Rother. "'You ordered the Prue shields dropped, Baron?' the Count asked. "'No one will harm the lad,' the Baron said. "'He's a hero.' The first of the charging mass reached Fade Rautha, lifted him on their shoulders, began parading around the arena. "'He could walk unarmed and unshielded through the poorest quarters of Harco tonight,' the baron said. "'They give him the last of their food and drink just for his company.' The baron pushed himself from his chair, settled his weight into his suspensors. "'You will forgive me, please. There are matters that require my immediate attention. The guard will see you to the keep.' The count arose bowed certainly baron we're looking forward to the fate i've uh, m- m- never seen a harken fate yes the baron said the fate he turned was enveloped by guards as he stepped into the private exit from the box a guard captain bowed to count fenring your orders my lord we will uh wait for the worst m- m- crush to um m- pass the count said yes my lord The man bowed himself back three paces. Count Fenring faced his lady, spoke again in their personal humming-code tongue. Mm, You saw it, of course. In the same humming tongue, she answered.
4: Ah, the, uh, lad knew the gladiator wouldn't be, uh, drugged. There was a moment of fear, yes, but
2: no surprise. Mm, It was planned. The entire performance.
4: Without a doubt.
2: It stinks of Hawat. Indeed. I demanded earlier that the Baron eliminate Hawat. That was an error, my dear. I see that now. The Harkonnens
4: may have a new baron ere long.
2: If that's Howat's plan...
4: That will bear examination, true.
2: The young one will be more amenable to control.
4: For us. After tonight.
2: You don't anticipate difficulty seducing him, my little broodmother?
4: No, my love. You saw how he looked at me.
2: Yes, and I can see now why we must have that bloodline.
4: Indeed. And it's obvious we must have a hold on him. I'll plant deep in his deepest self the necessary Pranabindu phrases to bend him.
2: We'll leave as soon as possible. As soon as you're sure.
4: Oh, by all means. I should not want to bear a child in this terrible place.
2: The things we do in the name of humanity. Yours is the easy part. There are some ancient prejudices I overcome. They're quite primordial, you know. Oh, my poor dear.
4: You know this is the only way to be sure of saving that bloodline.
2: I quite understand what we do.
4: We won't fail.
2: Guilt starts as a feeling of failure.
4: There'll be no guilt. Hypnoligation of that Fade Routher's psyche and his child in my womb. Then we go.
2: That uncle. Have you ever seen such distortion?
4: He's pretty fierce. But the nephew could well grow to be worse.
2: Thanks to that uncle. You know, when you think what this lad could have been with some other upbringing, with the Atreides code to guide him, for example... It's sad. Would that we could have saved both the Atreides youth and this one. From what I heard of that young Paul, a most admirable lad. Good union of breeding and training. But we shouldn't waste sorrow over the aristocracy of misfortune.
4: There's a Benny Gesserit saying.
2: You have sayings for everything.
4: Oh, You'll like this one. It goes, Do not count a human dead until you've seen his body. And even then, you can make a mistake.
1: Muad'Dib tells us in a time of reflection that his first collisions with Arakine necessities were the true beginnings of his education. He learned then how to pull the sand for its weather, learned the language of the wind's needles stinging his skin, learned how the nose can buzz with sand itch, and how to gather his body's precious moisture around him to guard it and preserve it. As his eyes assumed the blue of the Ibad, he learned the Chakopsa way. Stilgar's Preface to Muad'Dib the Man by the Princess Iralan.
0: Stilgar's troop, returning to the Sietch with its two strays from the desert, climbed out of the basin in the waning light of the first moon. The robed figures hurried with the smell of home in their nostrils. Dawn's grey line behind them was brightest at the notch in their horizon calendar that marked the middle of autumn, the month of Caprock. Wind-raked dead leaves strewed the cliff base where the C.H. children had been gathering them, but the sounds of the troop's passage, except for occasional blunderings by Paul and his mother, could not be distinguished from the natural sounds of the night. Paul wiped sweat-caked dust from his forehead, felt a tug at his arm, heard Chaynes voice hissing, Do as I told you. Bring the fold of your hood down over your forehead. Leave only the eyes exposed. You waste moisture. A whispered command behind them demanded silence. The desert hears you. A bird chirruped from the rocks high above them. The troop stopped and Paul sensed abrupt tension. There came a faint thumping from the rocks, a sound no louder than mice jumping in the sand. Again the bird chirruped. A stir passed through the troop's ranks, and again the mouse thumping pecked its way across the sand. Once more the bird chirruped. The troop resumed its climb up into a crack in the rocks, but there was a stillness of breath about the Fremen now that filled Paul with caution, and he noted covert glances toward Chaney, the way she seemed to withdraw, pulling in upon herself. There was rock underfoot now, a faint grey swishing of robes around them, and Paul sensed the relaxing of discipline, but still that quiet of the person about Chaney and the others. He followed a shadow shape, Up steps, a turn, more steps, into a tunnel, past two moisture-sealed doors and into a globe-lighted narrow passage with yellow rock walls and ceiling. All around him, Paul saw the Fremen throwing back their hoods, removing nose-plugs, breathing deeply. Someone sighed. Paul looked for Cheney, found that she had left his side. He was hemmed in by a press of robed bodies. Someone jostled him, said— Excuse me, Usul, what a crush. It's always this way. On his left, the narrow bearded face of the one called Farouk turned toward Paul. The stained eye pits and blue darkness of eyes appeared even darker under the yellow globes. Throw off your hood, Usul, Farouk said. You're home. And he helped Paul, releasing the hood catch, elbowing a space around them. Paul slipped out his nose-plugs, swung the mouth-baffle aside. The odor of the place assailed him. Unwashed bodies, distillate esters of reclaimed wastes. Everywhere the sour effluvia of humanity with, over it all, a turbulence of spice and spice-like harmonics. Why are we waiting, Farouk? Paul asked. For the Reverend Mother, I think. You heard the message. Poor Cheney. Poor Cheney, Paul asked himself. He looked around, wondering where she was, where his mother had got to in all this crush. Farouk took a deep breath. This smells of home, he said. Paul saw that the man was enjoying the stink of this air, that there was no irony in his tone. He heard his mother cough then, and her voice came back to him through the press of the troop. How rich the odors of your siege, Stilgar. I see you do much working with the spice. You make paper, plastics, and isn't that chemical explosives? You know this from what you smell? It was another man's voice, and Paul realized she was speaking for his benefit, that she wanted him to make a quick acceptance of this assault on his nostrils. There came a buzz of activity at the head of the troop, and a prolonged indrawn breath that seemed to pass through the Fremen, and Paul heard hushed voices back down the line. It's true then, Liet is dead Liet, Paul thought Then, Cheney, daughter of Liet The pieces fell together in his mind Liet was the Fremen name of the planetologist Paul looked at Farouk, asked Is it the Liet known as Kynes? There is only one Liet, Farouk said Paul turned, stared at the robed back of a Fremen in front of him then Liet Kynes is dead, he thought. It was and treachery, someone hissed. They made it seem an accident, lost in the desert, a thopter crash.